0: Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and the President of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts Towards the author of The Answers. In this chapter two of our second podcast season, we'll explore the theme of creativity and community restored. We're in a time of deep and angry division with fractures visible everywhere, worsened by the isolation brought on by the pandemic and the insular nature of our own social media streams. So how can we heal? How can we faithfully and thoughtfully seek the common good in an age of alienation? The conversations we've selected include authors, artists, scholars, and those actively engaged in the work of building and restoring community. It's our hope that you'll find inspiration and ideas here to creatively engage your own community as an instrument of grace and reconciliation. All of our episodes have been previously recorded and edited for length and clarity, but to listen to any of these conversations in full, just visit our website at ttf.org. So whether you're pouring yourself a cup of coffee and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. With that, here's today's conversation. It has been a tough week in the midst of a truly ugly year of fairly extraordinary divisions, distortions, and even national duress. Through that time, our public language has grown ever more overheated and vitriolic, our echo chambers more narrow. Our sense of identity, studies have shown, have grown increasingly politicized, even as our political views in the aggregate have grown more extreme, contemptuous, and incoherent. The result has been a growing confusion about what's true or false, significant or trivial, wise or foolish, right or wrong. And in a vicious cycle, as we grow more angry and addled, we also grow increasingly alienated with our communities fraying, relationships suffering, and our friendships fracturing. While those, there are those who inevitably uh, benefit and profit from stoking conflict, biblical wisdom holds that it is the peacemakers who are blessed. So how can we, in the midst of such chaos, learn to act, relate, write, and speak, so as, in the words of one of our guests, to survive and subvert organized confusion and to seek both justice and reconciliation. Our guests today have, in very different ways, undertaken the challenging and deeply creative work of speaking peace and seeking reconciliation in a fractured and fractious culture, whether through creating and catalyzing art and culture as a means of building community or considering and stewarding language as a source of health and healing Their experience and wisdom helps clarify both the call to serve as makers of peace and seekers of justice and spurs the imagination as to new possibilities for doing so in our own spheres. And so it is a great pleasure to introduce today our guest, David Bailey and Dr. Marilyn McIntyre. David Bailey is the founder and executive director of Erebon, a ministry that equips churches in effective cross-cultural engagement in their specific context. And in that role, he's also served as a consultant, strategist and frequent speaker, including as a TED talker. He's also the executive producer of the Urban Doxology Project, the author of Erebon, Learning Reconciliation Through Community and Worship Music, and was named by Christianity Today as one of the, quote, 20 most Creative Christians we know. Dr. Marilyn McIntyre is a writer, speaker, and professor of medical humanities at UC Berkeley and UCSF, their joint medical program, as well as a faculty member at Westmont College. A prolific and poetic author, she's written dozens of articles and reviews in journals such as The Washington Post, Books and Culture, Comment, Journal of the American Medical Association, and Christianity Today, and is the author of more than 20 books, including four volumes of poetry, her wonderful book, Caring for Words and a Culture of Lies, which we hosted her in the summer to discuss, and her latest, Speaking Peace in a climate of conflict, which we've invited her to discuss today. David and Marilyn, welcome. Thank you.
1: Glad to be here, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely, glad to have you both here. So as we start off, you both are in unusual fields. It is definitely the road less traveled. How did you get to the place where so much of your vocation is spent seeking reconciliation and stewarding language? So David, let's start with you on that.
1: Well, I mean, I think oftentimes say that I feel like the work of reconciliation chose me. I didn't really choose it. I mean, my uh, parents were really involved in um, a lot of like urban ministry, even though we lived in the suburbs. And so they did a lot of urban-suburban partnerships. Uh, so um, I think for me, one of the things that was really important that I didn't know was uh, formative for my life until I was in college. I was in a sociology class and I heard people talk about those people. And sometimes those people were poor people. Sometimes those people were rich people. But then I realized that folks had strong opinions about those people, but did not know anybody by name. And so there were these, I mean, super, super strong opinions. And, And I realized, oh, most people grow up with people that have the same racial ethnic background as them, the same socioeconomic educational levels as them. And they can kind of categorize folks in different spaces. And I spent a significant part of my life as a professional musician. I started like doing gigs around 14 and, and through college, playing at country clubs and I'm playing in an urban inner city areas. And, and I really got a chance to engage with a lot of folks of different races, ethnicities. and ethnicities. And so my friendships go deep. You know, my like I, I genuinely have friends who are on the left, who are on the right, who are in the center, people who are Christians and those who are not. And I hear the same thing about the other people. And I realized that like your life is a lot richer. My life is a lot richer because when I'm talking about the other, I'm not talking about somebody in the abstract. I'm talking about people that actually know people that I I, I do disagree with, but I do have friendships with. And I, I just fundamentally believe that this is what the church ought to be doing. Like I fundamentally believe that if anywhere else in the Christian community should be a place where Jesus had the zealot, And he had the tax collector, the person that was part of the system and the person that was trying to dismantle the system were uh, a part of Jesus' discipleship crew, like part of Jesus' community. And the kingdom of God that he was preaching was bigger than uh, whatever vision of flourishing that each of those, the the tax collector and the, the zealot had.
0: That's great. Marilyn, you've spent much of your uh, professional life, as well as your personal life, thinking deeply about language and writing several books
2: about the care of language. How did you get onto this road less taken? Well, I think there are lots of answers to that. The short one is I lived in a family in which conversation really mattered. And I, I had a grandmother in our home who was very good at gentle correction. So it wasn't all about proper English, but it was about a clarity. And so I think I learned very early on that clarity is a gift to the people around you. But also then spending most of my adult life in classrooms, teaching literature in one venue or another, it seems to me that literature is a good training ground for life in all kinds of ways. Every story is organized around a conflict. Mm-hmm. And so learning to imagine our way with the writers through conflicts with all of their complexities at so many levels provides a good a good lab for life. One of my favorite critics, Kenneth Burke, said literature is the equipment for living. Mm-hmm. So I think that the the people from whom I learned to read the Bible carefully and who my Sunday school teachers who had me memorize scripture and then... Later, so, so many people who have engaged with me in the life of reading have helped me to see how reading equips us to enter into conversations, private and public, with more attention to the language we're using and the images and the metaphors and all that equipment. Yes. So David, I've noticed that in many of your talks,
0: you stress that a basic building block in reconciliation is what you call a robust biblical anthropology, uh, which sounds intriguing, but perhaps a little bit unclear. What is a robust biblical anthropology and why is it necessary to effect a reconciliation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big questions that we are wrestling with in our society right now is what does it mean to be human? Mm -hmm. and I think that the Bible has a a very accurate and healthy way. I think one of the most accurate worldviews of what does it mean to be human. At the same time, I think American Christianity has a very sordid history and has not been living into what it means to be human. So, So if you just go into the scriptures, you just read, hey, what's the Bible about? You get only 26 verses in, and it says that, hey, let us make humanity in our image and likeness, both male and female. So it's the unity and diversity that is both a reflection of the image of God. It's not the maleness, it's not the femaleness, it's not one particular ethnicity or group of people. It is like the unity and diversity that's supposed to image of God. And then you see like in chapter two that like the first task is to cultivate a garden that was already good. And so in many ways, we're like cultivating culture before weeds get into the garden, before pesky insects and all that kind of stuff starts to bring death into a garden, we're supposed to cultivate and maintain goodness. And then, you know, you see like God invites us into then name things and make sense of our world and the name things in our world. And so these are ideas, you know, that, that Andy Crouch kind of put in his book, Culture Making. And And this is true. Like this is what it means to be human. And so unfortunately, in a time when uh we like as a country and as christians wanted to like engage in greed and had to justify that greed and then like and if you commit an act of violence against somebody you just can't just you just can't just punch a person in the face or say something like, you have to justify it in some type of way and particularly if you're going to do it for economic reasons then you you know you can't just say well these people deserve it and so the narrative that our country told and, and and christianity was used as a tool to tell this false narrative is that some people are human and other people aren't some people are predestined to be in control and dominate other people and other people aren't and that is something that we've practiced for hundreds of years like and and, and culture just doesn't change like that you know and so this is something where that was a co-opting and that was a that was an identity theft of, those, of, of God's intention and, and the work that Jesus is doing. And so we have to go back to what the text says and says that all people are made in the image of God before the fall. All people have something valuable to give before the fall, whether uh, we agree with them or not. And, and we have to start there as Christians.
0: You mentioned cultivation and how that was an essential part of being human, um, even before the fall. And it seems like another one of the building blocks you have talked about quite a bit as being essential to reconciliation is community co-creation, creating cultural artifacts with those with whom one has a difference. Why is that so important?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it reminds me of this like Proverbs uh, that I've heard, it's contributed as an African proverb says, hey, when I saw them far away, I thought they were a demon. When they got close, I thought they were an animal. When they got close, I realized they were human. When they got face to face, I realized they're my brother and sister. And so, you know, Jason Kane says it this way, that proximity leads towards empathy mm-hmm. and empathy leads towards unity. And so, A lot of times we demonize the folks that we're furthest away from, and as you get closer to one another, whether you agree with somebody or not, you see their humanity, and you see the similarities, and you see our commonness that we have as brothers and sisters, either of faith and or brothers and sisters just in the human experience. And so one of the best ways to engage in this is to actually engage in culture-making, Actually, diversity is really helpful to make great culture. You know, we're here today because of the culture that was made yesterday. So if we want to see something different tomorrow, if there's something that we feel like we're lacking today, then we need to create new culture for what we want to see tomorrow. And I think a lot of times we could spend more time cursing the darkness. We could spend more time Mm -hmm. complaining about what's wrong versus, hey, if you're not satisfied with what's going on in the world, and I'm not satisfied with what's going on in the world, what can we do together to co-create something and in that co-creation process creates this like pressure cooker that allows us to one get a chance to get in proximity with one another to build some empathy with one another to build some stuff together mm-hmm. and uh, and that helps to build some actual unity.
0: Marilyn, one of the really interesting points of convergence that I saw, at least, between your work, Caring for Language, and David's work of community building and reconciliation building, is one of the strategies you recommend is to promote poetry, which you called a public responsibility and not just a private practice. Uh, And promoting poetry by making it, enjoying it, promoting it. And of course, poetry comes from the word poesis, which literally means to make. So it seems like there's all this interesting point of convergence and that both of you from your different spheres advocate creation, making as part of the peace building process. In your view, how does poetry contribute to peacemaking?
2: Well, I guess I would start by referencing David's work in in helping people to make hymns, you know, which are just one of the most common places where poetry is shared in songs and hymns. And it seems to me that in most of the cultures I know about outside of our own, poets have an important function in the political conversation. People in Eastern Europe know that poets are dangerous people because they have a particular way of introducing truth telling that is subversive. It's sometimes it's surprising. When you cut off a sentence in the middle and that's the end of the line, something happens to the words that are sitting there on the line. And so poets, I think really, to go back to the garden metaphor, they're the people who plow up the ground, the soil of language that we grow in. And I think they help to refresh that soil when it's being depleted. So I also think that that poetry broadly defined, and that includes just any word work that people are doing with intention and clarity is a way of fostering the, the wide conversation where people are thinking about words. Right now, it seems to me that one of the best things we can do in the conversations we enter is to periodically call each other's attention to the very words we're using. Mm -hmm. and to keep asking, what exactly do you mean by that? That's an interesting image. And to play out or tease out the implications of the metaphors and the images and the turns of phrase and the illusions that we appropriate, that lifts everyone's attention into a more complex place of understanding what's going on. What's going on among us is always at one level language.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, that raises so many different questions. I think it's intriguing your point about specificity being important. Of course, you elaborate on this in your book and have talked both in that book and your previous one about how often simplification can be a tool of oppression. A sort of a cudgel used quite crudely. How does one sort of simultaneously encourage uh, necessary complexity with the clarity that you've also talked about as being so essential in the peacemaking process?
2: Well, there's sure a big difference between simplification and oversimplification. I I really make sure that students understand the difference between simple and stick, because I think that some very deep truths are also simple in the sense that they can be stated in one sentence, like God is love. Or all the commandments come down to this love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. No, so there's that condensation towards sort of deep simplicity. But the kind of simplification or oversimplification that's so dangerous is what we see in so many political slogans that become trigger words and that sort of prevent thought by presuming to offer an abstraction in the place of. Uh, a clarification, to suppress ambiguity, to suppress paradox. If you think about the fact that Jesus and pretty much every other spiritual teacher works in paradox, Mm -hmm. that should tell us that truth-telling is always paradoxical and always has many dimensions. So it even bothers me when people say, oh, well, let's make sure we hear both sides. And I think that's the trouble with a two-party system, you know, this notion that somehow there's either one side or the other. And that yeah. huge gray area where we all live in the middle, the end we all have to learn to navigate is not served by the notion that there are only two sides to a question. Right.
0: So even okay. part of reconciliation is not just the words that we speak or even the, the artifacts that we make, but the ways that we listen. And you've talked about that in the, the fact that in the work of reconciliation, we have to make a choice as to whether we listen as conversation partners or as debate partners. What are the different markers or mindset of a conversation partner uh, rather than a debater? And how does one, how does one kind of inculcate that in their own life
1: that's really great you know and i talk about this and i actually want to pick up a little bit of what marilyn talked about with just the whole deal of paradox you know and the multi-dimensional understanding of things and and i think this is a really really important aspect of stuff because we just have different perspectives like even on a zoom call like we're all on a zoom call together but our experience of the Zoom call is not the same, right? Like the order of what's happening. And we we oftentimes get in debates about each person's experience versus listening to each other's experience. And you you can have two different approaches to listening. One approach to listening is listening as a conversation partner where you're listening to continue the conversation, you're listening for understanding, you're listening to learn and to to contribute. The other way of listening is listening as a debate partner. And when you're listening as a debate partner, you're listening because you have a perspective and you're trying to defeat your enemy. And here's the thing, particularly, I think that as Christians, we have a unique problem We have a very unique problem that I I realized when I went, I got a chance to go to Israel with Telos in 2017 and got a chance to talk to people who were uh, Christians, who were Jewish Christians and um, Israelis who were in the Judaism religion. And I talked to Christians who were Palestinians and those who were Muslims that were Palestinians. And, And I talked to people who weren't religious at all. And here's the thing that I learned. And... Islam, Christianity and Judaism, you're supposed to love God and you're also supposed to love your family. And Judaism, and Christianity was to love God and love your neighbor. It's only in Christianity was to love your enemy. And not love your enemy in a theoretical sense, but actually we're followers of Jesus. So while we were the enemies of God, God got a proximity with us took on flesh, got to know who we were, understand our culture, understand our narratives, understand our stories, and sacrificially died for us. And so this is a very uniquely Christian challenge to have in any of these conversations because so often we don't listen, like we're listening and we're treating people as enemies in the way that the world deals with people as enemies. So whether somebody's your actual enemy, your perceived enemy, we're supposed to Listen as conversation partners, ask folks to understand and empathy with the goal of sacrificially dying and serving and loving somebody for their flourishing. And so I mean, it's such a, you talk about paradox. Like, that—we our faith is a faith of paradox. So this is, uh, uh, I think, an approach that is really, really important for us to engage in, particularly today and the times that we're living in.
0: So one of the paradoxes you both bring up is that seeking peace is not antithetical to delving into conflict and Marilyn this is a point you have made several times you know you caution not to play to win or uh, argue to win, but you actually encourage at times addressing conflict head-on how does one speak peace in addressing con- seek peace in addressing conflict
2: well it's interesting even the expression head on kind of borrows from a confrontational idea right mm-hmm. so i think confronting means face to face i think really to go back to something you said david to face to to face the person who is coming toward you to you recognize in them your brother your sister a dimension of the self that we are to love god as we love our neighbors and ourselves that seems to me to to set a relational standard for authentic conflict to begin by reminding oneself of the humanity of the person you're talking with and then i think to to ask questions like what do you mean could you tell me more about what you mean could you help me understand it seems to me that one kind of equipment we could help ourselves and others develop is a repertoire of questions that will really keep the conversational space open, allowing things to be said in a clear way in a safe space by really modeling and seeking a desire for understanding that says, I really want to understand what you mean here. Could you rephrase that? But also what? that serves to do is to catch people out if they're just trying to hide behind vapid abstractions that don't mean anything. I love quoting Ezra Pound who said, go in fear of abstraction. And if you listen to so much political discourse, all the words that end with T-I-O-N and N-E-S-S and all the isms, there, there are whole stories behind those. And so I think trying to keep the pathways open into those stories to say could you tell me a story to elicit parables from each other so to speak is one way of reframing a conversation that can otherwise just degenerate into an exchange of slogans or abstract terms that become you know weaponized Mm
0: David, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this as well. You have said at one point that conflict is an opportunity for God to be glorified. Uh, But for many people who sort of relish that opportunity, they may not be sort of inclined in their sensibility to seek peace. And a lot of times peace seekers see conflict more as the threat of fracture and loss of relationship rather than an opportunity for God's glorification. So I would love your thoughts on What does that mean? Conflict is an opportunity for shalom and God's glorification.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's this, I mean, book probably almost 30 years old now called uh, Peacemakers and Ken Sandy kind of introduces that concept, but uh, in general, like at Erebon, we talk about these five pillars of being a reconciling community and and this is distinctly Christian philosophy. This is uh, Mm -hmm. a a distinctly Christian way of engaging and. One of us to understand that reconciliation is really about spiritual formation. It's about how we are transformed and change. And, and, you know, Marilyn, you know, you know, her expertise is in literature, but you literally, like, whether it's a movie or a good book, if the conflict isn't clear and if the conflict isn't meaningful, then it's a terrible book. It's a terrible story. Like, like conflict is essential to a great story. And so ultimately, like, like there, there's an expectation, there's some type of violation, and there's a path towards resolving or reconciliation, right? That's the story of humanity, right? So if, let's just say, for example, Marilyn and I or Sherry and I have a conflict, God doesn't care if, they, if it's right, Marilyn's right or Sherry's right. God cares more about how do we honor one another in that process? God cares about how do we take, like, we're encouraged to say like, hey, I could call a fault out in Sherry or Maryland, but before I do that, I have to examine my own self. I have to take the plank out of my own eye first. I have to do some self-examination. And then even when I point something out in them, I have to do it in humility knowing that, you know, I am a sinner saved by grace also, right? And then I have my faults. And so that's like a distinctly Christian thing. I'm very grieved and disappointed that that that's thrown out the window these days. If you put whatever political party you're part of, you know, it's just like that supersedes your Christian identity in the way that we engage. God cares about how we're being formed the way that God cares about how we're being transformed and that we see that a conflict is an opportunity for maturity, a conflict is an opportunity for growth, then we could we could change it in a totally different way. I mean, I I learned that the most in my own marriage. My marriage counselor told me, she said, hey, y'all can take your spouse to court if you want to, but you never really win, (laughs) you know, right? Like in an argument, you you, you never really, really win. So even like, and and our, our relationship has matured so much as a result of us seeing conflict as an opportunity for God to be glorified and the an opportunity for our own transformation than winning whatever argument you know, we
0: have. We're gonna go to questions in just a second. But before we do, Marilyn, I was really intrigued in your book and towards the end where you drew the connection between laughter and grace and you invoke G.K. Chesterton in doing so and suggested that laughter is actually key to our ability to, to make peace and reconcile. And I'd love for you just to discuss that idea a bit. Why is laughter so important? And David, please feel free to jump in.
2: Well, I do think that humor ought to be on the list of the gifts of the spirit. It seems to me that where there's authentic laughter, it's not just laughing at something that is at a punchline. There's a kind of delight in life itself there's something about laughter especially children's laughter that needs that reminds us that underneath all the areas of conflict there's something quite amazing about just being alive on this planet and there is constant surprise available and another dimension of that this laughter for adults is that we can afford to laugh that I think really to laugh, even in the midst of the darkness, to find those occasions when we can share laughter, is to affirm something more ultimate than the immediate crises in which we find ourselves. I've taken some comfort these last days in the course of this week in thinking about the image of the earth from the moon that first came out was it in the 60s? It was amazing to think about this what one of the Episcopal prayers calls this fragile earth, our island home. But also to go back to what David was saying about perspective, when you back up far enough, there is a place of spaciousness and graciousness and amazement that it seems to me is related to that deep laughter that, that is an affirmation of life itself. And I think of, of people like Brian Doyle, who recently died, a wonderful writer from Oregon who wrote often for the Christian century. And he's did a number of books, wrote poems, wrote a book of uncommon prayer. These prayers were really authentic prayers for very earnestly held concerns. They were also funny. So there the playfulness that he brought to his own very articulate spirituality was such a source of delight and comfort for all of us. So I think laughter is part of the mandate to comfort my people.
0: That's great. David, how have you seen playfulness and laughter play out, so to speak, in the work of writing
1: I mean, one of the things that like as a discipline for me is I love watching stand-up comedians just to try to get perspective, you know? What stand-up comedy is about is the art of noticing, mm-hmm. and what makes something funny is that you have a setup, and it misses expectation, and and a, particularly into the truth of it or the irony of it that that makes it humorous, and so I think I think we all need to like engage in the art of noticing and look at the irony of the contradictions of humanity and and to not take ourselves so seriously, right? Like. To not be ruled by fear and anger, but to actually have laughter and joy, that's in the space and great storytelling. So, and it's it's awesome that also God identifies uh, God's self as one that laughs also, right? Like, and so that is uh, uh, I think that's something that it's like, wow, that's a that's an interesting observation. Like, maybe we should learn from that. Mm-hmm.
0: So our first question comes from Bill Haley, the executive director of Coracle, and Bill asks, this one's for my dear brother David, or for both of you, what are the deep truths or spiritual practices that keep you personally grounded in such divisive times, intense emotions, and real challenge? So David, we'll start with you.
1: Oh, man. Well, well, one of it, there's a prayer by a guy named Oscar Romero, and I just find myself reading it and praying it. And in essence, you know, it says that we're messengers, not messiahs. Mm -hmm. You know, we are, um, we are, we are, I forgot what it is. Like we're like builders, but not like the ultimate, like architect, right? Like we're we're just, we all have a part to play in it. And so one of the things that I really try to do is um, I just have a practice of meeting with a spiritual director twice a month. I meet with a therapist once a month. I have a hobby. I mean, you know, I, I try to do things like play golf and and just try to hang out with friends and laugh and like and just be with like a meal and with friends is like a thing that I just would do. And, and I and I also don't spend a lot of time on social media and watching the media. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed that my my soul, like, I just get really apocalyptic. I get like, man, the world's gonna come to an end. Because I know that no matter what the channel news station is, it's a business. It's a business trying to stoke the fires, to keep things going. And bad news always travels faster than good news, no matter what it is. And so I find that my soul state, status is just a, a lot healthier and more vibrant when I'm not watching the media. And I actually tend to know what's going on because people it's the same thing cycling over and over again for weeks on end. So then I could find, I could read a little deeper about the whatever topic that's in the news today, whatever happened today, didn't happen yesterday. It it took a little time to get there. And so it's not that I'm not informed, but I'm just able to kind of engage. So those are some practices that are really important for me.
2: Great. Marilyn, anything to add? I'm thinking about, you were talking about your personal practices, David, and I'm, I'm thinking about how when we get up in the morning, I love the rituals that my husband and I have evolved, especially during the pandemic, but we had them even before of talking about dreams, which I think are often a source of invitation to reflection. And I think wisdom can come from dreams, so that's fun. And then we read the lectionary, or at least part of it. And Lectio Divina, listening for the word or phrase that you can carry through the day has been very helpful for me just as a life practice. And then sometimes reflecting on it a little and then having a period of silence together. The silence is so important, especially because we're in such a noisy crossfire right now. And then we go listen to Democracy Now! and read the news and read good columnists. But but I think Staying in conversation and also making spaces between conversations with family, with our wonderful adult kids who have generational perspectives to provide us, and with students. I'm so grateful for still being engaged with students who bring perspectives that I wouldn't encounter just walking around my own own neighborhood. So all of that, I think, all of it threads back to the silence and the listening for the word or phrase as the guidance of the spirit at the beginning of the day.
0: That's great. So Marilyn, this one, next one is for you and it's from Sarah George who uh, asks, I'm curious, what is one word in common use today that you think needs to be rehabilitated or done away with for a time? And what is one word that you wish more people would inscribe on their hearts and minds?
2: Well, I'm just going to offer a word that I haven't talked about much, but I thought of it this morning when you were talking about argument and listening as a conversation partner rather than listening as a debate partner. I thought about all the different ways, alternatives to fighting or arguing. I love the way the British talk about, well, we'll sort it out. But the word that I thought of that I think we might reclaim is a Quaker expression. They talk about threshing sessions. They borrow a lot of their language from this old agrarian culture, but threshing, separating the wheat from the chaff, just trying to do discernment together is a wonderful word to remind us that there are alternatives to argument. Not that there isn't a place for argument, there is, but Threshing seems to me to be something very earthbound and organic and Mm -hmm. antique enough to be surprising. So that's a word I would love to rehabilitate. That's great. Gosh, there are a lot of words to retire. And I honestly think that conservative and liberal have gotten pretty worn thin and they mean so little now Mm -hmm. because they've been spread over so much bandwidth that I would love to see us find alternatives to those. You know, that um, game taboo, where you have to avoid the five obvious words when you're trying to get people to guess what word you're thinking of. I think, imagine if we could have a, a conversation about immigration or healthcare, for instance, but you couldn't say Republican or Democrat or conservative or liberal or progressive. Now have the conversation. So it seems to me that the labels that have gotten so contentious and have become trigger words. If we could find ways to navigate around those, we might have more engaging Mm conversations. That's great. So David, our next question comes from
0: Tony Cato. And Tony asks, what should a Christian do when they're willing to get close to the other to experience their humanness and still don't like what they see? Beyond that, what should they do if the other harms them? Is it as simple as forgiveness or is it more complex?
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's complex because humans are complex, you know? So a couple of things that I try to do is, well, one is I just realized that when Jesus gets close to me, he doesn't like everything he sees, right? You know, and uh, don't think that like, while Jesus is walking around on the earth for three, you know, for 33 years or however long it was, that he liked everything that he encountered, you know? And I think, I think there's a level of humility that I, I try to engage in. But also, while I'm there, and even before I get there, I try to understand different viewpoints as well mm-hmm. as I can, that I can argue other people's viewpoints and they think that that's my viewpoint. I think a lot of times we don't engage in intellectual honesty but I think when you can kind of actually like kind of get into somebody else's shoes, it's never as comfortable as being in your own shoes. But it's worthwhile doing because it helps to build some empathy. And I think that's something that's really, really important to understand because I think a lot of times we can get close enough, but it's almost like we're getting close enough to kind of like feel to just... I think that they're wrong. Let me just make sure. And let me just double check and do my investigation to see. So I... so. I just wanna make sure that we're having that posture of humility. I wanna also make sure that we are being disciplined to understand as much as we can to be able to really represent people as best as they would represent themselves. And then the third piece of it is, is that, I mean, that is one aspect of it that you do need to pay attention to. If somebody is causing harm to to be able to name it, to be able to say like, hey, is this like a perception of this? Or is this like me being inconvenience? Is this, you know, is this like me being uncomfortable or is this actually really damaging? And I think sometimes it's kind of hard for us to understand that. And then if it's really, really damaging, then I think it's discernment like to to say, okay, what, what is it that we we can do? We just live in a day and time where folks feel like just because somebody disagrees with me, then, I, then that's damaging. Like disagreement is not damaging. Like disagreement is just humans being humans. But if there truly is some kind of damaging thing, then I think just determined to figure out hey, okay, how can we have a healthy, how, what are the healthy boundaries that we need to have in order to have a healthy relationship? That's
0: great. Marilyn, a question comes from Claire Likert. And Claire says, you emphasize poetry and carefully choosing our words. What advice would you give to someone who feels like they never have the right words to say? <laughs>
2: Well, first of all, we can also always borrow and steal words from other people. I think it was T.S. Eliot who said good poets borrow, great poets steal. But that is to say what he was talking about was when you've received and claimed the the vast, beautiful legacy of words that have come down through the long conversation among the vast communion of saints, you get to claim that. So I think maybe... um, Just saying, you know, being able each day to say, I heard a phrase I really liked, and to pay attention to words and carry a few of them each day and bring them into conversation. That's a way of equipping yourself. And also, I think it's important to help one another create enough space in conversation so that you're not constantly pressured to come up with the next quip. I have been so appreciative of couple of colleagues and teachers that I can remember who, and I don't model this very well, but who spoke a little more slowly than was the norm. But I always felt as though they were making space for me to consider my own words and enter in. So I think maybe one thing I would say is slow down, encourage other people to slow down, let there be some rests in the music, and make space for questions or simply say, you know, I need a moment to think about that. I really love one of my friends who does that. And I so appreciate his just saying, I need a moment to think about that. Right. David,
0: Amy Ross asks, are there differences between reconciliation work corporately versus individually?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... I think there is, and I think this is something, I think this is a little bit of the challenge we have, particularly when it comes into the conversation, particularly around race. Mm -hmm. I think this happens for a couple of reasons. I think one, like culturally, there are some cultural people groups that are more individualistic in their identity Mm -hmm. and others are more collectivist in their identity. This is true, like, I mean, so just to say, if you have a continuum, America is going to be more individualistic in its understanding of identity than, you know, uh, a country like either um, in Africa or, or Asia. And so like these are, th- there's a continuum that happens. And then even within American society and culture, there are certain like people groups and ethnic groups that have a, a different uh, identity and space. And so I think what's 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 a little challenging even when we have conversations about this when you talk about topics of race, because sometimes people are talking about as individuals and what I'm responsible for as an individual or what I'm I to blame for as an individual versus what are we as a society? And, and it's just a lot of talking past one another in this particular topic. And so I would say that there's a couple of ways to think about this. Responsibility and blame are two different things. And so, you know, there are some things so, like in our society that nobody born here today is to be blamed for yet as fellow citizens and as kingdom citizens we're definitely called to share responsibility of things that we aren't to be blamed for Mm -hmm. and so so that is the invitation i think of like with christ reconciling all things like that's part of things that i mean yeah i'm responsible for the things that david has done but i'm also responsible for the things that christ is reconciling that that includes things that i i'm not responsible like I, i'm not to blame for and so I, I, there is a difference and there's a distinction and i and and i think as christians we're supposed to be responsible not only for our own individual actions but then also there are corporate actions and uh, wider societal things that christ is reconciling all things which includes both the individual and the collective that we are to be responsible for
0: I'd love to give the last word to David and Marilyn. So,
2: Marilyn, we'll start with you. Well, I was thinking about um, the ways in which peacemaking happens in quiet places among quiet people, that it's not all public and it's not even all institutionalized or organized, but it's the way in the way we live our lives. And so that brought to mind what many of you know the last few lines of George Eliot's Middle March. So I'll just read you that, one of my favorite lines. She says, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs." Beautiful. David.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, I want to just, I mean, I I referenced this prayer earlier and I want to um, just, close it out. Um, this prayer of Oscar Romero is giving us credit. He says it helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts. It is beyond our vision. We accomplish in a few lifetimes only a f- tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete which is a way of saying that the kingdom li- uh, always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objects objectives include everything. This is what we are about. We plant seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay a foundations, that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there's a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step forward along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and to do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future that is not our own. Amen.
0: David, Marilyn, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with us today. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's programs and show notes are available at ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift
2: of great conversations.